questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today's podcast is sure to push some buttons, raise some questions, and hopefully create a fair amount of meaningful dialogue. And that's all because I'm talking with C. Baxter Kruger, a theologian and author who is part of a quiet revolution helping Christians to reclaim a dynamic and life-giving understanding of the Trinity and all that that implies, including a Jesus-shaped understanding of the very heart of God. Baxter Kruger is the director of Perichoresis Ministries. He teaches around the world, and he earned a Ph.D. from King's College, Aberdeen University in Aberdeen, Scotland, under the tutelage of renowned theologian Professor James B. Torrance. Baxter is the author of eight books, including The Great Dance, Jesus and the Undoing of Adam, Across All Worlds, and most recently, the international bestseller, The Shack Revisited. C. Baxter Kruger is an avid outdoorsman. He's also the founder and president of Mediator Lures. In addition to being a theologian, he holds two U.S. patents for his fishing lure designs. To learn more about Baxter Kruger and his ministry, you can visit his website that was developed to be a leading resource for Trinitarian theology on the Internet. And that website is perichoresis.org, P-E-R-I-C-H-O-R-E-S-I-S, perichoresis.org. Let's now join the conversation with Baxter. Well, Baxter Kruger, thank you for being on the program today. My pleasure, Michael. Been looking forward to this for a long time. Yeah, me too. I have been uh, a fan of your books, probably going back to when The Great Dance came out, The Great Dance, The Christian Vision Revisited, and I think that was at least 10 years ago that that came out, right? Yeah, try 17. (laughs) Whoa, okay. Well, I heard about it through my pastor who had preached a sermon around it, and it was putting words to things that I was deeply feeling, and I suspect that a lot of people were feeling and are feeling. But talk with me on the front end of our conversation about how on your journey as a now a theologian and pastor, how your basic notion of God was converted. Yeah, well, I grew up in South Mississippi in a very conservative Calvinist church, um, uh, hyper-Calvinist. In a, in a matter of fact, I was taught the five points of Calvinism from my mother's womb. Memorize the child's catechism was almost finished re- memorizing the shorter catechism, but um, somehow around ten years old, I just realized that there's something going on here that's not right. And of course, how can a ten-year-old even begin to argue? But the, they they taught me all these passages like "You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free," and "Out of your innermost being shall flow a river of living water." Um, the kingdom of God is within you. The joy unspeakable, full of glory. I mean, all these verses. Uh, we were given as children, and um, anyway, so uh, if my mother w- was here, if you asked her that question, she would say that this all started when I was in her womb, and she said, you were born wrestling with these questions, Baxter. That's just the way it was. I've known this your whole life. And, uh, but when I was in college um, uh, at Ole Miss, University of Mississippi, very well known for its uh, its professionalism when it comes to partying, and I was the lead dog there for several years. Um <laughs> And um, but at the end of the parties, 
uh, you know, at two and three and four o'clock in the morning, there was a little field behind my dormitory, and I'd walk on that field and just cry out to God, thinking, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. And so my senior year at Ole Miss, I went to the library, and I checked out a book called uh, Athanas- Athanasius' little book called On the Incarnation of the Word of God. Um, recently I've discovered how I knew about that book. It was through a quotation from C.S. Lewis because he actually has an introduction to one version of this. And so reading that book, uh, which is very, very readable, he wrote it when he was 21 years old, but it took me into an entirely different framework because, and this, this was the quote that just uh, rocked my world. What then was God being good to do when his creation was on the road to ruin and lapsing into non-being. And that rocked me uh, because I knew, that, I don't even know who Athanasius was, but I thought that's what I know to be true, but it doesn't fit my Calvinism at all. Because in Calvinism, God is good, but only sometimes and to some people. He's not good as part of his being and nature. So I read that little book. I went back to try to find whatever else I could from Athanasius. And he introduced me to a completely, uh, well, it's not a completely new framework because I had known it my whole life. But the basic framework is, is the, is the Trinity, that God is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit. And so that orients the meta, what we would call today the meta narrative, that this God, this Father, Son, and Spirit create the human race and all creation for one reason. And that is so we can share in the life that they've shared for all eternity. And when Adam and Eve turned away, the Father, Son, and Spirit's reaction was not on our watch. We did not create you to perish, and we will find a way to get inside the darkness and bring reconciliation and resolution. Our decision to to include you in our life is uh, not up for grabs. Uh, And that was the heart of Athanasius. He just saw God as good. So there was no sense in which the Father had to be bought off or paid off or appeased or changed or anything. So the whole coming of Jesus the incarnation is this astounding move where the Father's Son, who's face-to-face, as John says with him from all eternity, becomes what we are and enters into our darkness and indeed flesh in order that he can share what he knows and feels and experiences with his Father in the Holy Spirit with all of us inside our darkness so that we can begin to be freed and liberated and share in that life. So that's a that's a monumental theological shift. It's taken me 30-something years to try to work this out, and eventually that led me to go to Scotland to study with Professor James B. Torrance and do my doctoral work uh, under him because I, I, I discovered that the two Torrance's, brother Thomas F. Torrance and James Torrance, there's actually a third David, uh, but but J.B. and T.F., uh, I started reading them when I was in seminary and I thought, oh my goodness, these guys know Athanasius. I didn't know that T.F. Torrance was a world-renowned scholar on the early church. I just thought, this man knows the God of Athanasius. So that was the way it happened. That's a lot for a undergraduate who's partying <laughs> and who had had those uh, kind of transcendent experiences as a boy. Um, but it, it sounds like it was very your heart was very fertile and that that just planted a seed. How did you get from being an undergrad to seminary? How'd you make that decision? Did it just gain traction in you? Uh, again, my mother laughed when I told her that I was going to go to seminary. And she said, well, I've known that your whole life. And I said, well, it was news to me because the last thing on earth I wanted to do was to spend my life reading uh, religious insurance manuals. Um, and so what, what the, the, the next phase in the theological development for me was in realizing that when you see creation as the act of the Father, Son, and Spirit, 
then you don't have this sacred secular divide, which was one of the other questions in me because I love the Lord from as long as I can remember, but I also love baseball and I love riding my bike. And as I turned 12, 13, 14, I love girls. And I was like, how does that fit in with this whole notion of doing the God thing? You know, because it seemed like if you're going to do the God thing, then that's all about prayer and Bible study and witnessing and going to church and being all involved. And I enjoyed uh, golf and my family and just humanity. So this Trinitarian vision does never allows that sacred secular split to happen. So you begin to realize, oh my goodness me, that my love for baseball is actually my participation in the life of the Father, Son, and Spirit. My love for my family, my my interest in making fishing lures. My, uh, my I've got a granddaughter, and my, I spend as much time with her as I can be. I, I don't even have an agenda. I spent probably two hours with her this morning, and I just said, "What do you want to do?" And and she wanted to go outside, so outside we went and. And that's the way the Lord walks with us, and it includes our entire humanity. Uh, so I knew this early on inside of me. I don't know. It was a gift. It, uh, it was. Uh, I have two brothers, an older and a younger, and they're both great men and done great things, but they don't have that same passion and drive to understand and get clarity. And it was just a gift given to me and a calling, and uh, I have loved it every single minute of my uh, life, and then it's, it's been an ever-increasing awakening so that when I'm reading the Gospel of John today, I'm like, where have I been? <laughs> where has the church been? It's like in the first verse. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is face-to-face with God. He was in the beginning with God face-to-face. All things came into being through Him. It's like John set the trajectory of Christianity there, and we, we've lost our minds, and, and we're coming back. And I think it's beautiful how the Holy Spirit has changed the questions that most people have. And uh, and and people are now, they are interested in in. How does Jesus, how is Jesus involved in my life, not in my religious life, but in my humanity? And that answer can only come when you begin with the Trinity and you begin to see, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. All of this is bound up in, in, in his relationship with his Father in the Holy Spirit. That's a partial answer to your question. Um, yeah, and s- until you encountered Athanasius as an undergrad, you didn't connect the dots between this world of joy and being a boy riding your bike and the beauty and, as you say, as an adult, golf and grandchildren and and all of that. You didn't connect that to the reality of God. And now your calling as a a pastor and theologian, you've described it as to uh, help people pierce a veil so they can see the sheer beauty of God. It, it it is, Michael. When you know, Paul says, whenever the Old Testament's rail read, the veil goes over the mind of Israel. Well, there, nowadays it's whenever the New Testament's rail read, a veil goes over our minds because we've got such default settings. So, it's the simple gospel is this: is that God is Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity. Their dream is to include us. Adam uh, when uh, rebelled and went his own way. The Father, Son, and Spirit said no, and now Jesus has done it. And this is Ephesians one. He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Now, we've made Jesus a footnote to Adam's fall, but that all goes back before in the conversation. So now you can see creation itself as the act of God. It's the beginning of this great dream to include us, and it's the theater, if you want to put it that way, or the the place where the life of God and humanity meet. So the veil, and I've got my new book, Patmos, um, is a, uh, I don't know if you, well, you said you hadn't read that yet, but um just a quick note about that, because uh, it's a novel. It's not uh, like my other books, and 
in the Patmos story, uh, there's a, a burned out suicidal theologian from Mississippi. His name is Aiden. And he's absolutely at the end of his rope. And um, he's done. And he studied history. He studied, I mean, a lot of his life is mine. Um, but he is suicidal. He just can't cope with this anymore. And he gets up to go get the newspaper on a stormy Sunday, Sunday morning. And there's these lights and prisms and bizarre stuff in his foyer. And the next thing you know, he's disappeared from his house and he's in total darkness. And the long and short of it is eventually he discovers he's in a cave and that he's actually time traveled. And he, he meets this old man. And it turns out that the old man is the apostle John. So John has been sent back to Patmos on a mission. The mission is to lead Aiden to encounter the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit inside of himself. But in order to do that, John has to deconstruct Aiden's Western mind. And the big point that John makes is that the darkness, the assumption of separation from God, is the great darkness. And it's just, it's completely deconstructing Aiden's whole way of thinking because his premise is you're separated from God. You have to get back. Somebody tell me how to get back. Well, then everybody that can, you know, wield a scripture with a least, least bit of, you know, charisma gets a flock. And then though each flock is against the other flocks and the other ways back. And so in this story, Aiden encounters Jesus on his inside because he never looked there because he was ashamed of himself. He didn't know that Jesus was already there. He didn't know this is already finished and that he's just walking in the darkness. And so John leads him, and he has these monumental encounters, and then John begins to help him understand that Jesus is everywhere. I mean, and he just kind of like, it's almost like he just opens up his gospel and says, what do you think that verse means? You know, it's like, mm, this is, wow. This is verse 3 of my gospel. This is not this is not chapter 22, footnote 8. I'm saying, you know, the father-son-spirit relationship, everything comes into being through them, and the, the light shines in the darkness, and darkness doesn't understand. So what is God to do? When his creation's on the road to ruin, what is the father's son to do when his bride has so lost her mind that she runs for cover when he's present? And that's his argument in the prologue. And John says, and so the word became flesh and dwelt in us, finds his way inside the great darkness inside of us so that we can begin to see what he is. Um, the veil is the assumption of separation, and once you assume separation, you have to find a way back, and you're working the program. So every time you read the New Testament, you're looking to find your confirmation of your way back to God or prove that somebody else's way back to God is wrong. So that's the, that's the blinder right there. So go ahead. Yeah, and we get it absolutely backwards because for many, many, many years, probably up until about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, as I started to walk through some deep trauma and suffering, I started to ask some new questions, and that's when I encountered some of your writing and Paul Young's writing and, and other people that are kind of talking in this vein. And this idea that we are not separated from God is so radical, and yet as I look through Scripture, it's like boom, boom, boom. It's just so there in the text. But it's as if there's a lens that I've been given where I'm actually – seeing through this veil. So talk specifically about some of the the arguments or pushback that you hear from people that are saying, here's what the Bible says about, no, we are separated from God. Well, what I say is, yes, you are separated from God only in your own mind. And you are separated by God by your, your faith. And so 
John is saying and Paul is saying that we will never meet anyone anywhere, no matter where we go in this cosmos, or we will never meet a single thing that did not get here apart from Jesus, and it does not survive here apart from Jesus. And we're not talking about what we know in our series and our ideas and all that. We're talking about what is. Um, and that's what John uh, says in the story, in the Patmos story. He says, Aiden, when you cannot see what is, you go create something that you can see in your imagination. So I understand why a Calvinist would push back against me. I understand why a North American evangelical would push back against me because I'm not fitting into their systems. I'm challenging them, and I'm challenging them based on the Bible and based on the historic creed, the Nicene Creed, and the early church uh, fathers and mothers. And my, my mission is not to argue. My mission, I have been commissioned by the Lord to go tell people. Baxter, you tell people I am in them and they're in me, and I did that. Ask me if this is true, because when people ask me, are you in me? They're going to hear me say I am. And that is a new place to have a conversation. So there's the pushback is Baxter saying everybody's included. They just don't know it. And I'm like, that's exactly what I'm saying. (laughs) But let's talk about the word. No, we're not talking about intellectual information. We're talking about experiential knowing. We're talking about Hebraic knowing. Other people push back and say Baxter's a universalist. Uh, therefore, everything he says is wrong. And I'm like, well, I'm I'm actually not a universalist. I, I hope, I have every reason to hope that everyone's going to come to know the truth so as to experience their uh, the embrace of the Father. But that's not given to us as a dogmatic fact in the New Testament. So, no, I'm not a universalist um, uh, in that sense. And so what I'm saying is that we're all included. Jesus is saying to us concretely, here's what I want you to do. Take sides with me. Take sides with me against the way you see God. Let me teach you about my Father. Take sides with me against the way you think about the Holy Spirit. Learn from me. Take sides with me against the way you think about yourself, Baxter, because you have been really hard on yourself. And listen to me, and I promise you, if you will take sides with me, this is repentance, metanoia, changing the way you see and think and believe and know. If you will walk with me, and let me be your rabbi, I'm going to take you to places and to experiences that right now in your darkness are inconceivable to you. All I'm asking you to do is trust me. And that's not an abstract trust. I'm asking you, ask me if I'm in you. And then we can begin a relationship. Uh, to you, we're beginning a relationship, not to me, because I've been, I'm the one in whom you live and move and have your being from the, from the very beginning. So uh, there's two things that sound to me that are, that are underneath a lot of what this veil consists of, and you write about these. But one is that we have a misunderstanding of sin, and that speaks to our humanity, and I'd like you to comment on that. The second thing is is that we have a misunderstanding of holiness, which speaks to our, our view of God. So first, will you talk about um, what you've called the legalization of God in relation to his holiness? Well, this all happened in, in the early church in the Western tradition. Uh, especially through the through Rome, and then eventually through the Roman uh, Catholic influence, and then the Protestants were reacting against it. But when you read Athanasius and Irenaeus and Hilary and Gregory Nazianzus uh, and uh, those early church fathers, which are which we would say are in the East, but at the time there was no divide. Uh, they are dialed in, single heart, single minded, focused on the reality of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That is who God is. So when you take a word like holiness. 
what they're going to do and what they're trying to teach us to do is you look at the Trinity and you allow the Trinity to begin to inform what that word means. Well, in the West, the Trinity was important, but it never did and it was never allowed to address the default settings of legalism. So, for example, when Isaiah says God uh, is holy, and I've heard plenty of sermons on this, uh, we don't even notice that Isaiah saw God on the throne, and he describes him as, as holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he says, who can I send? Who will go for us? So the holiness of God is a Trinitarian idea. It's a relational idea. Now, in the Latin legal tradition, holiness began to be uh, uh, thought of in terms of moral perfection and distance and otherness and removed the hebrew tradition holiness is is in a class it's it means to be in a class by itself one of a kind nothing like it in the universe anywhere that was the way they began to see it so the holiness of god is really about the way the father son and spirit love each other and about the the blessedness of their life it is in a class by itself there's nothing like it in the universe anywhere and it's the very thing that's being given to us but in our latin tradition of which we protestants and roman catholics are all of a part that the fundamental character of god in terms of holiness was that god was unapproachable and removed distant and morally pure and therefore we're going to read the entire bible story from that perspective so when we hear Jesus say, be holy as my father is holy, we can't even conceive of what that means. We're thinking, I've got to be morally perfect without stain before I'm even worthy of attention. What he's saying is live in this life with me and the Holy Spirit, where you are free to give yourself for the benefit of others and live this life, this one, this one of a kind in a class by itself. So you've got, you got the use of a, of a Bible word, holiness. And you got two different contexts that it's going into. Most of the time, people don't, are not even aware of it. So we have inherited a definition of holiness that, to me, is not biblical and it's not faithful to the apostles and not faithful to the, to, to what Jesus was teaching us. Now, that's that's just a bomb that goes off inside of people. How could we be so wrong? Well, we've got a historical precedent of that two thousand years of how we lost our minds again and again, and the Holy Spirit brings us back. The holiness of God is speaking of the exquisite, one-of-a-kind, unique, in a class-by-itself life that the Father, Son, and Spirit live. That's what holiness is. It's so beautiful, it's too beautiful for words. It's pointing to the way the Father, Son, and Spirit are other-centered, self-giving, sacrificial. The Father doesn't sit on a throne above the Son, and the Son doesn't sit on a throne above the Holy Spirit. This is face-to-face. It's, it's, that's holiness. Now, that redefines, that, that leads us away from all that legalization, which is finally and blessedly killing us. So we can yeah, and cry out. You said, you said beautiful, and as you were describing that, that's the exact word that was on the tip of my tongue. And I, I literally find myself like leaning forward, like, yeah, yeah, you know, say more. The issue is that if, if we get that definition of holiness wrong, then back to the other question it uh, it gets us to understand our humanity wrong on one level because with that legal view of holiness we say well god cannot look upon sin or you know god is this morally perfect being and therefore uh, you know he is he is offended and 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 full of wrath in a way that's misunderstood so talk about how that misunderstanding of of holiness transfers into how we live we we read the entire bible framed that way 
But if you look at the story in Genesis 3, where is this wrath and this vengefulness and this anger? It says, if you look at the text, actually in the Hebrew text, it says, the Lord God's, the word for God, there's plural, were walking in the spirit, ruach. And Adam and Eve are hiding from the Father, Son, and Spirit because they have lost their minds and they now think that they projected their own guilt onto God and created a God in their image and, and of the guilt and shame. And they're scared to death and they're not coming out of the bushes. So the, the whole story is about how the Father, Son, and Spirit find a way to do the impossible, starting with Abraham and finding its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And that is to reach the human race in its blindness, where it thinks what it sees is right and everything else is wrong, including God. So with the way this all translates is that we end up with, okay, uh, this amazing, uh, utterly flabbergasting statement where we say, on the one hand, God is, is too pure to look upon evil. And yes, Jesus is God, but, but he's not like God because Jesus became a human being. In fact, John says he became flesh which is humanity lost in its blindness. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 21, says not only that Jesus, but the Word, the Son of God became human, anthropos, and not just flesh, sarks, but he, came, he became harmonious, he became iniquity. So now we've ripped the Father-Son relationship apart, and we can't believe that Jesus, when he says, I and the Father are one, and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because we have now defined God in this way where where he is so pure and so removed and so disinterested and unapproachable and impersonal that we have a split between Jesus and the Father rather than recognizing the very reason Jesus came is because we're completely wrong about God. So ironically, when Jesus says in John 16... Um, when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit is going to teach us about sin and righteousness and judgment because these are the three things that we've got dead wrong. So if you if you stop for a minute and confess, like we all do every Sunday morning, that I am a sinner, then go on and confess, and I have a sinful view of sin, a sinful view of uh, judgment, and 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 so I need someone to give me new eyes and redefine what sin is and redefine what the problem is. And therefore, we can begin to see the coming of, of Jesus is the passion of the Father. He is the Father expressed for us saying, no, I did not create you to perish. I, ref- I did not create you from distance from me, even if that distance is on your, in your own mind. I did not create you to uh, to flounder in this darkness and fear and in pain, I created you to share in my son's relationship with me and joy in the Holy Spirit, and we will not turn our backs on you. In fact, Jesus is going to, is going to go inside the darkness where we can't see God at all, and he knows that his father is not ever going to forsake him, but he's going to the place to where he can't see his father, and he knows the Holy Spirit will never abandon, uh, abandon him. So instead of the cross being this moment where the father in disgust turns his back upon the son and abandons him, this is actually the exact opposite. This is not a sinners in the hands of an angry God. This is God in the hands of angry sinners to get on the inside. So Jesus is pitching his tent inside our rejection of him, inside our murder of him. And Papa is saying, you want to murder my son, I will accept your murder and I will turn it into your adoption. I think he looks at Judas. Jesus says, you want to betray me, Judas? I will accept your betrayal, and I will turn your betrayal in me into the salvation of the human race. 
And I think the Holy Spirit's saying, I will enter in Jesus. I will enter in Jesus into, into our rejection of him and our wrath poured out on him. And I will make that place my temple where I dwell with the Trinitarian life of the Father and the Son in me. So now the Christian life is no longer, it's uh, in the legal frame, it's framed this way. God is holy. We failed. Jesus came to pay. Now we're supposed to do right. And if we do right, believe, uh, walk the Christian life, then we get a ticket. So we can go to heaven when we die, and none, not a one of us wants to go to heaven to be with that God, but we don't know what else to do. But when you reframe it with the early church and the apostles, then you have Father, Son, and Spirit and their determination that we be brought into this circle of shared life. Jesus has done just that, and he did it by submitting to us in our darkness when we murdered him. Now he pours out his Spirit on all flesh, according to Acts and, and to Joel, and the Holy Spirit's leading us to know who we really are. He's bearing witness with our spirits that we are sons and daughters of God, and all the Lord wants from us is to participate. Now, here, let me give you one, one verse here that is, I think, telling us how to read the Bible. John seventeen twenty six, the last statement of Jesus in his high priestly prayer. Father, I have made you known, because you're not, I have made you known to them, and I will make you known in order that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Now, that's the mission of Jesus going all the way back to eternity. I want them to see and know uh, you with me, see you with my eyes, know your love with my heart, live in joy in my spirit. And I'm going in, Father. So the Christian life is then about letting Jesus, taking sides with Jesus so that we begin to see his father the way he sees them. And, and, and here with Jesus, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom my soul delights and to walk in his spirit. And we don't know how to do that. And Jesus says, I won't, I won't orphan you. I'm going to disciple you and walk you through this. And we're going to, it's going to play out. And I'm going to give you space and time in your own journey to live out your theology, your mythology, your theories. And the wheels are going to come off and you're going to think everything's over. And there we're going to have a new conversation. Uh, and, and so that's what Christianity is. Christianity is sharing in the son's communion with his father in the freedom of the spirit and abiding in me. Jesus says, I love him. abide in me. That's it. And so as you abide, let's take it one more step. Two, two more things um, in that. As I take sides with Jesus against the way I see my, his father, and I begin to see the father for who he really is, then, then my inner world begins to calm down. And fear begins to have its butt kicked. And in its place, I'm beginning to have some peace. And that immediately means several things in terms of my life. First, it means that I am no longer completely self-centered. That's what fear does. Fear makes you self-centered, and it means that in that moment when you're afraid, you, your wife or your husband exists for only reason, and that's to help you with your fear. Your children are extensions of that. But when you calm down on the inner side, on, in your inner world, you can begin to notice that your wife or your children are actually crying, and you begin to have enough security in your own soul that you're free to lay down your life to serve them for their benefit. That, that one point alone is what makes the Christian life so beautiful and so good in terms of a journey. And if all of us are having our inner worlds calm, we, we're not going to need wars to prove that we're superior. 
we're going to be free to lay down our lives and serve our brothers and sisters for their benefit. And that's that's one dimension. The other dimension is as you calm down in Jesus's peace. And that's what he says. He says, I have given you my peace. I have not given you a manual to five steps to peace. I have not given you a manual to 10 steps to joy. And I've not given you instruction on how to love. I'm saying I put, I put my love inside of you and my joy and my peace. And I want you to go play in the yard in it. And I don't really have an agenda what you want to do because I want to be with you. Just like, just like me and Caroline. But now I begin to see as my inner world calms down, I begin to see Jesus everywhere. And that's, that's, I begin to see Jesus in places that I don't expect to see him because that, that group over there don't, they don't believe like I believe. They hadn't jumped through the right hoops. They hadn't prayed the right prayer. They hadn't done all. They're all separated. So now I see the life of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the garbage men that pick up my garbage every Tuesday and Friday. I don't relate to them as garbage men. I'm beginning to relate to them as, as brothers and sisters in Jesus, whether they know it yet or not. But I know what that service is. And let me tell you a quick, a quick story. Um, my son and I were playing golf about three months ago. We were on the fourth tee, and it was a par three, and we were waiting for the crowd, the, the group in front of us to clear. And we're just sitting there jawing, talking with a couple of my buddies. And, I, and it was in a neighborhood. It's in my neighborhood. And I look over, and I see smoke. And I said, son, that's, that's not smoke from leaves burning. That is a house fire. So we go flying around. And he jumps out of the cart with my friend David, and they go running. This lady comes running out of the house screaming about her dogs. My son and David go around the back of the house, scale this six-foot fence, and get the dog from the backyard, come back over the fence. The lady is utterly just beside herself. By this time, there's 10 or 15 people there that are trying to comfort her. The fire truck comes up, and there is this massive fire coming out of the garage. It is so hot, I had to move my golf cart from across the street up about a block is I thought it was going to catch on fire. And I thought, this thing is, this is over. This house is gone. And there are houses all around it. And this fire truck gets up, pulls up. And this young man, I'm thinking he's 25, 26 years old. He grabs that hose. He's got his uniform on. He's got his face mask on. He turns his oxygen on. He grabs that hose and single-handedly hauls it over through that yard and turns to that garage. And he hits that nozzle. And that spray comes out. And he walks right up into that fire. And I'm, I'm sitting there with tears in my eyes, and I thought, you know, first thing I thought was Gandalf in the cave. You shall not pass. Second thing I thought was I have seen this courage before. This is the Father, Son, and Spirit say, no, I didn't create you to perish. And I am, I am utterly opposed to your destruction, which is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is the love of God opposing the things that destroy his creation. And us. And I saw that young man walk up in there, and I'm telling you, I see the Trinity in him. I see Jesus' courage in him. That man is filled with it and the determination of the Holy Spirit. And he walked up in that flame and he put that thing out. His buddy ran behind him in the front door and got the other dog. And I'm I'm just dumbfounded by this. I see everything different now. This has changed the way I see it. And I look at that young man and I think, you know somebody's probably going to come over to you, give you a bottle of water and say, son, are you saved yet? And I'm thinking, I'm looking at the salvation of the blessed Trinity pouring out of that man's heart. Not on my watch is this house going to perish and these dogs and this family be destroyed. And he's participating in it. And And so once you see this, you then see, okay, now I understand what Jesus talked about when he talked about the kingdom of God being within us. 
But if you don't see it, then that man is just one more kid who's separated from Jesus and needs to jump through whatever hoops that somebody tells him to jump through. And if we're not careful, what we're going to do is get him up in church and tell him he needs fireman is good and that's a good service. But you, if you want to serve Jesus, you got to get more involved in the life of the church. Wow, this is so captivating. That is darkness. That's what John said. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot see it. And so the word became flesh and found his way inside the darkness so he, his bride could see. And we're right in the middle of it. And at the, at the very center of this revolution is the recovery of the Trinity and recovery of the Trinitarian vision, which was all mapped out in the early church. And we got trapped in legalizations and the live separation. But now the Holy Spirit's bringing us in the Western tradition, all the traditions in the West, back around. And that's what's happening on earth right now. And it's just phenomenal. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick, produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. 